You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Monday, September 28th, 2020, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington, joined shortly by Real Vision's managing editor, Ed Harrison. Welcome back, Ed. Happy Monday to you, Ash. Happy Monday to you. Yeah, it's good to see you as usual. Yes. So U.S. equity markets on something of a tear the last few days. Let's hit the closing numbers here before we get started. Dow Jones Industrial Average up 1.5% to settle at 27,584. S&P 500 up 1.6%, uh, closing at 33,51. And the big gainer of the day, the NASDAQ composite up 1.87% at 11,117. Very nice. And actually, one thing that you missed uh, is the small cap uh, 2000 actually was up more than the, the NASDAQ. So small caps did really well today. Yeah, up 2.4%, the Russell 2000 to close at 1510. So very, very nice day. Good three-day market. I, I've seen that the S&P has had its best three days since June. I saw another figure about the market's uh, since April, one of the best uh, three-day periods. Uh, so all around, uh, we we see uh, bullishness in the markets uh, these past few days. Yeah. You know, Ed, uh, you wrote a piece this morning, Credit Write-Downs, that has got me thinking, literally for the last seven hours, I've been puzzling over this. And, you know, the nature of the piece is really trying to understand how you price equity premia uh, based on the risk-free rate, this extraordinary period uh, that we're in right now. Uh, and it got me thinking, really, why don't we throw out all the jargon, start from the very beginning, uh, explain, Ed, why stocks have value, how we price them, and why that matters. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a good exercise because uh, not everyone follows it. And, you know, there are different ways of doing it. But basically, the way to think about it is that you're a part owner of a company when you buy a share. However many shares there are outstanding uh, you own that per the percentage associated with that, th the amount of shares that you own. So if there are 100 million shares, say, and you own 100, then you own one millionth of the company's earnings, whatever they might be. And what are those earnings? Well, those are the earnings in perpetuity because you're the owner. Um, and so the question then becomes, how much are the earnings today worth? How much of the earnings next year worth? How much of the earnings the year after and so forth? And that's how you get it together. So if you have a company, it's earning the same amount of money year after year. It's not like the, the money that you earn today, let's say it's a billion dollars uh, with this company, is the same as the billion dollars in 2021 or 2022. The money that you get today is, is more valuable than the money that you get uh, later. Uh, the, the, the further out you go, the less valuable that money is. And what people do when they uh, do a discounted cash flow model in order to model this out, they take a look at what they believe the cash flows will be in, in the uh, future, and then they get a present value of those cash flows based upon a discount rate, which is tied to the interest rate 
that uh, is prevailing in um, in the market. You know, Treasury, the 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 dip, the, the interest-free rate. And then you add on it, you tack on a premium for equities and you can discount those cash flows back to today. And voila, you have a entire discounted cash flow model that gives you what that company is worth. Yeah. And that's the basic. That's where you start from. That's the foundation. And now let's talk a little bit about this extraordinary time that we're in right now. You were talking about your interview uh, with Ben Inker, um, who, of course, is uh, the new face of uh, GMO, so to speak. Uh, J Jeremy Grantham still with the firm, uh, but Ben coming into uh, more of a day-to-day -day role. Uh, you talked about uh, podcast. Uh, Odd Lots podcast with Joe Weisenthal uh, and Tracy Alloway, and trying to figure out and understand what's happening during this extraordinary time, why large cap tech stocks have run up the way they have, the relative valuations of growth uh, versus, versus value stocks. This is really the core of what is driving these markets today. So what are your thoughts on that, Ed? You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Well, you know, the, the interesting unsaid thing in that piece. It uh, was about Lee Cooperman, who's a billionaire uh, investor, former Goldman Sachs. Uh, he also ran his own hedge fund. Now he's at a um, family office. I had an interview with him that's going to appear on the platform tomorrow. And his basic uh, thinking was Apple at 45 times earnings or 40 times earnings. I, I'm a buyer there. Uh, and a lot of that had to do with the discount rates and uh, how much Apple's worth given that discount rate versus, say, 30 years ago when the discount rate for future cash flows was 10% instead of today 5% or whatever it might be. So right. I think um, that was in the back of my mind. That was the unsaid piece. But overall, what we're seeing is, is that we're seeing that we have slow growth. And that slow growth is leading the Fed to keep rates low, interest rates low at the short end of the curve. And then people realize that growth is so slow and the Fed has already signaled that it's going to keep rates low for so so long as a result of that, that the outside part of the curve is also low. So the curve is flat from zero to 10, to 10 years or to 30 years. And yeah. the result of that is, is that those discount rates are much lower. And so those distant cash flows are, are much more. And that's why Lee Cooperman, as an example, is willing to pay more for Apple than he would have, say, when uh, the discount rate was higher in uh, the year 2010, as an example. Yeah. One of the things that you've been talking about, and I think is really interesting and really in, in sort of instructive about this whole framework of, uh, of thought is uh, Microsoft, I think it was back in 1999, uh, the valuation model then was pricing the earnings at 75 times. So on a relative basis, Apple compared to Microsoft, relatively inexpensive. Yeah. And but at the same time, you know, again, I'm going back to my conversation. I thought it was very interesting because I look at 
the 75 times earnings and the ability for Apple to run up to 75 from where it is today as sort of, you know, emblematic of where we could go to, uh, Cooperman was saying, but wait a minute, you know, Cisco was trading at 200 times at that particular juncture. And remember the discount rate, remember where interest rates were at the time. So you have those two factors. Then, you know, think about Inker. This is what, what he was saying to me. He was like, and, and I agree with this, is, is that the reason that the discount rate uh, is so low is, is because earnings growth will be so low. I mean, there, there are two, part, two toggles there. You know, right. you have the growth rate of the entire universe, uh, of all companies, the entire economy being low on the one side. And then on the other side, you have the discount rate being low. And those two should wash. They should uh, take each other out. So it's not like we're now in a different environment and therefore it's the exact same for the prospects of the company because their top line growth has already just come down. The difference, however, now, and this is the, the kicker, is the difference between uh, small cap, uh, medium cap, and large cap, and also growth versus value. Because... Uh, large cap growth companies are in a position that small cap value companies are not doubly. One, the growth is coming in certain places and not in other places. And two, there's a certain winner take all mentality. There's a certain winner take all dynamic to a lot of these markets. When, when you talk about Facebook, when you talk about uh, Google, you know, think about their competitors that used to exist that no longer exist. It's a winner-take-all dynamic, and they're get, they're reaping the benefits of that winner-take-all dynamic because not only are they growing, but they're growing without any sort of pressure in, in their markets. Yeah, and so the net result is that the uh, additional revenue growth accrues to the largest and most dominant companies in the space, uh, and other companies get shut out uh, of that upside potential. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, if you look at the mean reversion of price earnings ratios or profit margins, let's look at profit margins, actually. It, profit margins had a tendency to rise uh, and then fall with the business cycle. But what we've seen over the last two cycles is, is that profits have remained relatively elevated. And that's not necessarily the case uh, for all companies, but it's certainly the case for the companies in the S&P 500, the large cap companies that we're, that we're thinking about. And there are a number of reasons why that might be the case. But what it also says is, is that uh, there's a certain uh, premium, therefore, that you might be able to get out of those companies. Part of that being that they face less competition. Less competition means more profits reap to those who are in that market. And then, of course, you add on in certain sectors the growth, and you can see that this is a, a this is a, an, an environment in which you have a bifurcation. So we're seeing now when we talk about uh, income inequality and wealth inequality, we're seeing the same things that, that are happening at the household level also happen at the corporate level. There's an inequality in terms of what's, uh, you know, who is who is there. And this has happened over a longer period of time, over the last cycle from 2009 to 2020, and then over this uh, particular period during the COVID crisis, we're seeing that as well. And there's no indication to me that there's going to be any change anytime soon, that people are going to suddenly rotate into value 
uh, in a big way. L- let me tell you something that I found interesting today because the headline for today was about people rotating into value and into industrials. Now, I discount that to a certain degree because we've seen this narrative over and over again. Part of that has to do with rebalancing. I think we talked about this on Friday that you know, if, if you run up and uh, on a certain sector, the growth sector, then your portfolio is na- naturally then therefore high in growth. And so you have to rebalance your portfolio just to get back to the sector uh, level of amounts that you really want to get. But that doesn't mean that suddenly value is going uh, to go up. But it does mean that there, there might be to the degree that the economy does well, uh, some, some big bets. Remember, I was talking about Apple and uh, Facebook at 40 times, 35, 40 times earnings. I'm looking at JP Morgan Chase right now. uh, They're trading at 12 and a half times earnings. I'm uh, looking at Goldman Sachs. They're trading at 15 times earnings. Uh, Citigroup, seven times earnings. Okay. So this is what we're seeing in the financial sector. So if you think that the economy is going to do really well, obviously Citigroup, one of the, the laggards within the financial services sectors, uh, uh, for the larger companies, that's a company that you want to get involved in. Uh, we haven't really seen that. I think today is a one-off. We see these rotations back and forth, right. but uh, you know that's where value can 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 really run up. And we haven't seen it. I think because really what the markets are telling us is that it's secular stagnation. We're th- people are not seeing a a huge uh, uplift. The, the, the fact that the momentum trades are happening is because that's where the growth is going forward. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this ties together, this thesis, this conversation ties together uh, some of the biggest picture points that we've been talking about in markets now for months, this being a fundamental driving factor. Uh, on the technical side, we see what's happening in the options market. You tie those two together in credit write-downs, talking about the optionality of the future cash flows on tech companies uh, that people are seeking through call options. Could you tie that together for us now? Yeah. So I, I thought Ben Inker's point on this was good. And I have a separate point that I could make if I can remember both at the same time. Uh, the, the, way, the way to think about it is that, um, you know, when, if you think about these future cash flows, just from a, an options perspective, if you're if you're long a stock, you're long a call option on their future profits. And to the degree that they have a you know huge growth and they're a very fledgling company, you're, you're really looking at a high implied volatility. Uh, the reason that you know the price earnings ratios for these companies are so large, or even if they're a loss-making company that they're, they're valued for so much, is because the implied volatility of that option is high. So what happens then over time? Uh, what happens, generally speaking, is th- that growth uh, slows down. And at some point in time, you realize that uh, the implied volatility has slowed down and you don't recoup uh, the, the return for these, these stocks and the stock price goes down. The opposites happen with the, the likes of Amazon, even though what was priced into the stock uh, was very high. Amazon has continued to deliver in terms of its growth year after year after year. And so that's a perfect example where uh, you made the right bet in terms of thinking implied high vo- implied volatility is high and actually it's worth it for me to go with that stock. But the problem, of course, is twofold when, when, uh, when the bet goes the other way. One is that uh, 
as I said, as the maturity goes up, the growth goes down. That was the Ben Inker point. Uh, but then the second, I think, is, is, is that there's a time decay. That is, is that the option actually loses value over time. So what was more valuable here five years into, uh, into the future becomes much less valuable two years into the future. So the option is now two years. And so just de facto, the options value has decayed in that three-year period. So those are the things that are working against you with these large companies. And that's why uh, you know, when you bid them up to the levels that we've seen, there's a, a high probability that uh, you're going to see some downside risk there. Yeah, that's that's very well said. You know, and to tie together all of the biggest picture thoughts that we've had now, it seems for months, you mentioned secular stagnation earlier. Uh, and, and this is really kind of the key, I think, for understanding the potential of where we are right now. Secular, obviously, meaning long-term stagnation, absence of economic growth. This is a, a theme that's most uh, commonly associated with Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary, but also dates back to the 1930s, the economist Alvin Hansen, who first described the effects, essentially an increasing propensity to save and a decreasing desire to invest, all coming from low economic growth. And that really is the core of all of the things that we've been talking about, all of these bizarre phenomena that we see in markets right now coming from that economic foundation. Yeah. And I think that's where people get to the whole concept of a debt jubilee, because as interest rates have declined over a set on a secular basis, that is over a longer period of time since the early 1980s, what's happened is, is that it's allowed people to lever up both companies and um, and individuals, and to a degree governments, but that's a separate issue that we won't tackle. What that basically means is, is, is that we're at a point now where uh, debt levels are high, um, and to the degree there's any sort of difficulty in the economy, people are not inclined to take on more debt. Um, and that's a limit to the amount of growth that you can get. Unless you can give more money uh, that is, you know, more income to the people and the and the places that have a greater marginal propensity to spend or to invest, you're not going to get a whole lot of growth out of the economy. So growth remains low, investment therefore will remain low, and then you get into this 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 trap of secular stagnation until you can work off that debt load and then people feel uh, relieved and th and they can move forward. So the deleveraging that we saw, in 2008 and 2009 continued for a very long period of time after the recession was over until people finally felt, okay, uh, now we can start to, uh, to spend a little bit more. And the same thing, the same dynamics are at play right now. Uh, and the people with the greatest marginal propensity to spend are the people with the lowest income. And those are the people who are hurting the most in this pandemic. And the result is therefore, and, and we should anticipate that secular stagnation will continue in this cycle in the same way that it it happened in the last cycle. Yeah. You know, and we talk about long-term trends. Uh, th sometimes uh, journalists, people who follow markets, we get caught up in the chart of the day, the chart of the week, the thing that is, uh, you know, most uh, current, most new, most shiny and interesting. But if you want to look at the chart of our lifetimes. It's the 30-year treasury yield. It essentially rolls down from about 15% uh, down to where we are right now, which I think is about 1.4%. This has been happening since Ronald Reagan's 
first term in office. It is a 35-year trend that just keeps chugging along the absence of uh, inflation and an absence of growth. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, and you know, it, it is a trend that explains so very much. Uh, and the fact that it's come to an end is um, is important. When you look at uh, inflation, the level of inflation that we had that precipitated uh, the the growth and in, um, in interest rates, uh, that was unprecedented in uh, modern history. Uh, you can go back a very long period of time uh, across a wide swath of com- uh, countries. You know, globally, we n- we never saw that level of inflation, and and since then, that level of inflation hasn't come back globally, and so therefore, interest rates have gone down. But that explains why uh, you know discount rates have gone down, and therefore, stocks have gone up. That also explains why people have felt uh, free to um, to lever up. That explains why you know mortgage uh, rates have gone down, and people ha- have been able to afford even more house than they would have uh, in in the past. So all of these things naturally have to come to an end because we're at a level of interest rates that there's not much more room to go. I know that in Denmark, as an example, they had uh, negative mortgage rates at some point in time. that that's a bit extreme, and I don't think that that's a a a thing that will be a common occurrence. So we're really reaching the 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 ability for uh, in, uh, lowered interest rates to actually have a positive effect. Uh, so I think that we're at the end of the line there, and what it means is, as a result, we're not going to get as much growth as a result of the accumulation of debt, which is where a lot of the growth over the last 35 years has come from. Yeah. And that's very well said. We're at the end of the line uh, or near the end of the line simply because there's uh, nowhere lower to go on a year on a yield basis. You know, the 30 year uh, German Bund right now is yielding uh, minus zero point zero nine five percent. And the the thing is, I think that one thing that people fail to realize uh, uh, there's this concept of endogenous money, which is that you know, uh, credit is created endogenously, money's created endogenously within the economy because banks uh, lend and every time they make a loan, they create a deposit. That, um, that All that money that's created by banks is a multiple of what the government can create. So uh, really it's about the private sector and the financial system, the financial sector creating the credit, not the government. And so when the government comes in and tries to fill the gap with deficit spending, that will not have the same impact that uh, endogenous credit creation will have because it's not as large. Uh, You'd have to actually have the government really, you know, uh, turn it on in order to get the same sort of impact. So all of the, the, the money printing, all of the deficit spending that we see is simply not enough to get that same sort of impact. Yeah, and talking of simply not enough, if you take a look at the velocity of the M2 money stock, that's exactly what you see. So I think that's where uh, the rubber hits the road on secular stagnation. 
This is why uh, we're seeing uh, growth over value. And there's nothing that I've seen in the past uh, weeks and months that makes this go away. I think that it's very much more entrenched. And I continue to think that uh, unless we see a very short period of, uh, you know, uh, post-pandemic rise, other than that, there's no reason to think that growth over value won't continue for the foreseeable future. Yeah. So we've just given the biggest of the big picture today. Yes. And I think that the way to sum it up is we're so bearish, we're bullish. At the end of the day, the secular stagnation is bearish, but the impact in terms of the economy, the bifurcation, if you will, is is bullish for the, the, the momentum stocks. And it will continue to be bullish until you get some sort of, you know, absolute, you know, crisis like we had in March. And we're just not quite there at this point in time. That starts to sound, Ed, like down so long it looked like up to me. (laughs) Exactly. Hey, talking of which, uh, one of the stories that we were looking at over the weekend is this company, Civil, C-I-V-V-L, right up in Zero Hedge is how I first saw it. Uh, And uh, the, the headline in Zero Hedge is, Landlords Avoid Confrontation with Uber of evictions. And basically, uh, Civil is a company that uh, hires people to go and do the dirty work. They hire people to repossess cars. They hire people to uh, evict people from their houses. It's a scathing article in Zero Hedge and and, and uh, an intriguing one to read. Effectively, their take is, look, we're hiring blue collar guys to evict blue collar guys from their houses. Right. So they've gigified uh, the uh, eviction space. They've said, this is our new gig job. So the the economy is so bad that people who are being evicted because they lost their gig jobs are being evicted as a result of other people serving papers, you know, moving furniture uh, as a gig. That's where we are now. I mean, that tells you we're running on fumes here in terms of the, the business model, the economic model. Uh, that we're utilizing. We really need to find a better solution very quickly, or we're going to see some very negative things down the line. Yeah. Yeah. Grim tidings, Ed. Yeah. I wish I could be more positive, especially on a day like this that's positive. But I think that the the longer trajectory that we're looking at is one where it's very much uh, a flat line in the way that we've seen before, low growth um, and there's nothing in the news today that makes me think that there's any change in that. Yeah. Well, you know, Ed, that's, that's exactly why we do this. Markets uh, get exuberant for a couple of days in a row. We see uh, we see a lot of green on the screen. Uh, and then we try and zoom it out to the bigger picture to figure out what's really going on under the hood. So, uh, Ash, I, I, I don't have anything more to add, I think, today. But uh, I hope that uh, people appreciated uh, just the deep dive into discounted cash flow modeling and optionality and, you know, theta time decay of options. Uh, I think it helps build a better picture as to why these things matter uh, and, you know, good frameworks to think about them. Yeah. The only thing I have to add to that is let us know in the comments what you think, if this was helpful, the biggest of the big picture, uh, explaining some of the framework of the framework and how we got to where we got to. Ed, as always, a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Ash.
You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.